0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Riverbend. Uh, it's great to see you here. It's great to have our college students back. I feel like I should be like, standing here to, preach, to concentrate in that area, but I'll try to give both sides equal attention. Um, my name is Drew, and I'm a member here at Riverbend. Um, I also serve as a part of the ELDER team, um, which is the leadership team here at Riverbend um, over the past two years, and we will be continuing on for two more years, at least. Uh, for my regular job, I am an engineer at Beebron, just down the street here, where I manage a team of developers working on automated pharmaceutical compounders, which fancy name for a, a pump that mixes ingredients that go into a bag that might get infused into somebody. Um, so, you know, being an engineer, if you see some grammar errors or formatting issues, that's, uh, that's why that's happening. I'm sorry, Keith, our, our morning call editor, uh, might not love that but <laughs> it's an, I'm an engineer. Um, so I've had the opportunity to preach a few times over the last uh, six years now, of being a part of Riverbend, which has been really an honor. Um, my wife, Amanda and I, and our two kids, Carson and Lydia, uh, have been uh, coming here um, for the better part of six years, and uh, yeah, I, I get to uh, lead us now in, in this next chapter in Hosea, um, but you know, this series we're titled Extraordinarily, "Extraordinary Love," and as you know, Tyler walked us through last week, and Joe before that, we're kind of in the book or the part of the book of Hosea where it's not really about this extraordinary love in the same way that it was in the beginning. Um, beginning, you know, this love story of Hosea and Gomer, you know, where Hosea is embodying what God has for his people, where he would go after Gomer even when she was unfaithful. It was, you know, hearing sermons about God's relentless pursuit was kind of like the, uh, the big theme over the first three chapters. Now we're in the part of the book of Hosea that maybe could be retitled Extraordinarily Tough Love. Um, it's this part of the book that uh, centers on judgment against Israel for their unfaithfulness. Um, you know, while we had the Lord's relentless pursuit, if you look at the title of Hosea chapter 13, at least in my Bible, you know, the little titles they put on top, it says God's relentless judgment on Israel. So not as heartwarming uh, as we um, enter our t- today's passage. But as I thought these last few weeks um, and how, uh, you know, Tyler walked us through last week as well, these judgments are not just for Israel, right? They're, they're warnings for us as well that our human heart hasn't changed over the years that we're still guilty of some of the things that we're going to hear about today. Um, these things are things that vie for our hearts and they vie for the heart of our society as well. Sorry, I'm going to adjust this real quick. <laughs> Should have done that first. Um, but also, you know, in this passage, we see glimmers of God's saving promises and his rescue plan for us shining through even in the midst of the harshest of judgment. Um you know, so while it's maybe part of our Bible reading plan that we'd rather skip a lot of the times, it is something, you know, we we see that thread of hope that God has always had for his people, uh, you know, carving through at the same time. And it's something we we do need to get into and read, even if we'd rather skip it sometimes. Um, So if you'd open your Bibles or turn your attention to the screen, we'll be going on through chapter 13 of Hosea. And disclaimer here, um, there is some violent and disturbing language in this chapter, maybe more so than most other chapters in the Bible. So at you know my discretion, I kind of omitted some chap some verses. Uh, we'll skip over those. If you know you want to read those on your own, you're welcome to. Uh, Joe, wherever you are, you're welcome. I think most of the church will maybe open their Bibles this week as a point of intrigue. Um, but if you if you're read following along and you notice I skipped some parts, if you read it you'll you'll see why. Um, so we'll turn your attention to the words here on the screen. We'll go through the whole chapter just in one shot. When Ephraim spoke, and Ephraim is like the northern kingdom of Israel, if you don't uh, remember that from before, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sinned more and more, making for themselves metal images, idols, skillfully made of their silver, silver, all the work of their craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes away early. Like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like the smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God, from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full, They were filled and their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. Then in verse 9, He destroys you, Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. This place of still darkness that the Jewish people believed the soul went. Um, I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? compassion is hidden from my eyes though he may flourish among his brothers the east wind the wind of the Lord shall come rising from the wilderness and his fountain shall be dry, shall dry up his spring shall be parched it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God they shall fall by the sword So there's a few things I want us to think about as we start to unpack this chapter together. So um, up on the screen, you'll see these kind of overarching thoughts that we'll walk through. Uh, first is, what we really need is need. Um, second, God is like a lion. And that's good, but terrifying. And third, compassion did not stay hidden from his eyes. And so the first point we get to today is that what we really need is need. And we, you know, Hutchinson's and... and uh, John just led us through worshiping uh, in this way where we acknowledge our need before God. Our vision team met this morning. Uh, For those of you who are members here, uh, we talked about kind of this overarching theme of begging God for our vision for the next year. Um, But before we get into the verses and unpacking this, what I wanted to start with is kind of a personal uh, experience I had recently that uh, kind of depicted this in a a new way. So did anyone go down uh, to the beach this uh, year? Anyone maybe planning to squeeze in over the last few weeks of summer? Uh, Sorry, I know summer's coming to an end, or maybe for some of us it has come to an end. Um, Well, earlier this summer, my family and I, we we did go down the beach, or down the shore, I guess the right way to say it, right, for us here. Um, And, you know, it's interesting for my wife, Amanda, and I, because we were going with a four-year-old, my son, Carson, and a two-year-old, my daughter, Lydia, and... They both think they're indestructible at this age, right they, they don't think anything can hurt them, and as you can imagine with the ocean that makes us very very nervous, um, you know it wasn't necessarily the most restful time as we're there you know by the water with them. we're not just dipping our feet in and enjoying you know we're making sure they at all times are not dying right that's that's our main focus, um, but we tried to prepare them, right I, especially Carson, our four year old you know, yeah, I sit him down, and you know first time before we go in, look, the ocean is stronger than you it's you know way way bigger than you and so you have to be really careful and respect the ocean and you know being a four-year-old before I can even finish my sentence he's like no I'm stronger and he runs to the ocean and starts pretend fighting psh, 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 kicking the waves um, you know and very quickly we had to come up with a strategy because that wasn't going to be good if he thinks he's stronger than the ocean um, so first we kind of had this rule you have to hold my hands if you're in the water or hold my hand if you're in the water um, That quickly turned to him just trying to pull away from me. He's fighting against me. We're both pretty irritable after like five minutes of doing this. And we're like, okay, this has to change. So, you know, I think maybe I'll just let him go for a little bit, you know, still in arm's reach. I'm not, you know, just let him play in the deep end or whatever, but, you know, he gets knocked over very quickly by the waves. And his attitude about the ocean changes immediately, right? It goes from pulling away from me trying to get free of my hand to not wanting to let go of my hand. You know, he's clinging to me. And soon, you know, after we do this for a while, that clinging turns into short periods of time. He'd, you know, go off a little bit. He'd see a wave coming, you know, maybe like 30 seconds before it gets there. He runs back to me and just taps my hand real quick and checks in with me. And then he goes off and does it again. And he did this for about five hours. <laughs> and, you know, it just, I didn't think it was possible for someone to, like enjoy something for that long, right? If you have kids, you know, they could just be uh, just euphoric about something for so such an extended period of time. And it's, uh, you know, for him, he even forgot to eat. And he, this is the kind of kid who needs a snack every 30 minutes or he's super upset about it. So I'm, I'm there, you know, on vacation, somewhat sleep deprived from, you know, transitions of sleeping habits on vacation, just watching him do this for hours and hours, you know, these little check-ins with me. And I thought it was a beautiful picture of our need for God. We're most distressed when we're fighting against what he wants for us, when we think we don't need him, when we think we're strong enough to do it on our own. But we're most joyful when we know that we need him, when we're, you know, very aware of our inability to do it on our own and we're constantly checking in with him because we know that we need to. So we, in the book of Hosea, we see in this part of history that they Um, you know, being written to, through Hosea on behalf of God, Um, but they're in a part in their, you know, life as a nation that they are getting knocked over by the waves. You know, this this kingdom of Israel, it's gotten split uh, in this, you know, ugly, murderous fashion. The northern kingdom is on the brink of being taken into exile by Assyria. And, you know, what does God say about it? You know, he says, essentially, I am allowing this. More than that, I'm orchestrating this. This is my judgment because they forgot me. But before they were a people who forgot him, God reminds them of a time when they were in need and when they knew him. He says in verse 4, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You, knew, you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. So if you remember the Old Testament, if you've read through it at all, um, you know, Israel, before they came to have their own land, they were wandering in the wilderness in the desert for forty years. If you also remember, they weren't necessarily, you know, in a perfect relationship with God back then. They had times where they grumbled, you know, they made images of God, they didn't believe He was going to do what He promised. But, you know, one thing about them was true: they absolutely and irrefutably needed Him. Um, you know, when when they were in that time in the desert together, God, you know, directly and miraculously provided food for them. He provided water for them. Victories in battles that they had no business winning for them. Um, healing them from deadly snake bites. I mean, if you look through Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, it's just amazing display of God's power after amazing display of God's power. He was to them during the night a pillar of fire, and during the day a column of smoke um, that when it moved, they knew it was time to move, and they knew where to move. Um, he was literally all that they had and they knew that there was no savior besides him and they, they had no doubt about that. So I ask you, you know, do you remember a time in your life when you had nothing but felt a closeness with God that just couldn't be shaken in that time? Maybe it was when your bank account was almost nothing but you lived generously anyway and trusted God to provide. Or maybe it was when your body or a loved one was racked with sickness or pain but you had incredible confidence that God was still in control. Or when you didn't have enough time to study, but you knew that the one who knew every detail in the universe would be there with you as you took the test. When you were stuck waiting, agonizing for that job, that spouse, that child, but at the same time overcome with peace that God's timing was perfect for you. Maybe you're in that time now. Romans 5 uh, says it this way, that we should rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. I always felt this was a little bit odd, you know, this jump from suffering to hope somehow. But thinking of it in light of this chapter that we're in in Hosea, you know, you can see Israel's hope and trust in God was the strongest when their suffering was the strongest. So we do rejoice in our sufferings, um, you know, as Christians, because they're opportunities to strengthen our need for God and our hope in him. And so thinking about whatever it is you might be going through, you know, what suffering is it that you're going through that you can use as an opportunity to practice needing God? And as you practice needing God, you strengthen your hope and your trust in him. I I know and I'm aware that, you know, many of us are going through things, really difficult things, that it's hard to just reframe that as just an opportunity to trust God more. You know, I, I know I struggle even with the simple things getting enough sleep with the kids sleep schedules or having difficulties at work where you know it's just easier to just sulk and dwell in the suffering and not try to connect it to something bigger Um, not trying to connect it to how this hardship might be forging within us a deeper trust in the one who holds the universe Um, but it is worth it and and we if we take these verses as a warning you know we want to use these opportunities uh, to trust him more to hope in him more because on the flip side you know if hope does not put us to shame what ultimately does put Israel and often us to shame um, you know in this case the opposite of need for them is pride it says in verse six in hosea but when they had grazed they became full they were filled and their heart was lifted up therefore they forgot me so maybe you've now made it in this world or by the world's standards at least that you have that house that job that family that education that clean bill of health whatever it might be but you've never felt further from him you've never you know felt that you know despite having what society would call influence and stability you've never felt less power or felt more shaken in this world and you know i want you to know personally i'm not coming at you from a place of having figured this out some moral high ground you know, i'm coming at you as one who needs to hear this You know, just as much as anyone else here. And, you know, when I read verse 6, I'm alarmed that I see too much of myself in this verse. Um, Because the truth of it is, you know, we can't outgrow our need for God. Um, And, you know, operative word here is can't. I'm not saying here that it's impossible to outgrow our need for God, even though that is true. What I'm trying to get across here is that we can't afford to outgrow our need for God. We better not outgrow our need for God because the threat of that forgetting Him is so great, um, I don't want to get people to, or have people have the impression that the right thing to do is, you know, drain your bank account, not study for that test, don't take care of our health. But there has to be this constant cycle of reframing what we see around us in light of eternity, that, you know, we can't forget Him. Right? Besides Him, there is no Savior. That these things that you know, seem to offer power stability, comfort, ultimately fall short of the deepest longings of our soul. So I, I also pose the question to you, what successes in your life are you experiencing right now that are causing you to forget God? You know, what is it that, you know, when when you have an opportunity to really not think about anything, nothing's pressing in on you, what creeps into your mind is that thing that your your mind goes to, that your heart longs for, that isn't God, because you know, this is the warning we see in this passage about Israel. They're filled up. They've become prosperous. You know, they've asked for kings they, that they could be independent, do it all on their own, be just like everyone else. They go after other gods, ones that they themselves can create and mold and shape and can and uh, you know, ultimately make say the things that they want to hear rather than things they need to hear. And so, you know, right after this, God says to them uh, in verse seven, so I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. And we, This isn't the verse of God we like to make fridge magnets about or even the imagery of lion. You know, we sing our God as a lion. This isn't really kind of the lion we imagine when we sing those worship songs about God as a lion. Um, And it brings it to our next uh, thought that we want to focus on today is that God is like a lion, and that's good, but it's also terrifying. Uh, If you were here a few weeks ago, Joe led us through a verse that also in Hosea compared God to a lion, and he mentioned uh, Aslan out of the Chronicles of Narnia, and I'm glad he didn't go with that too much because I was hoping to go with it here a little bit. Um, So for those of you who don't know, um, Aslan is the lion in the fiction series, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Uh, He, Aslan, is the creator, the savior of this world. And when the children, uh, who are the, you know, the heroes of this book, um, or this series, they they meet him in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And, you know, when they they hear about him, when they hear that he's this lion, they're, first of all, they're talking to a family of beavers. Yes, all the animals talk. Um, But they say this. So the beavers are saying, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Is he safe? No, he's not, but he is good. And being good, you know, the story unfolds that Aslan is gentle and compassionate and peaceful, but towards evil he's ruthless, and that part of being good that we don't necessarily appreciate so much um, and that we have a hard time attributing to God is that, you know, to be perfectly good, God must and will destroy evil. And this is ultimately our only hope. And, you know, some people in the world today are much more aware of that. Those who are suffering under constant oppression and injustices, you know, that, that hope that God will ultimately put that to an end is, is very present and real in their lives. And it's a good thing that he's this lion that has this kind of power. You know, in, in the story, Aslan falls upon the white witch, ending her evil reign in Narnia. You know, we can't overcome evil in any kind of final way by our own power. Um, but then this imagery of God as a lion, it becomes terrifying because we realize that this very evil that God cannot abide, which he will destroy, it lives in our very hearts Hosea in verse 9, it says, He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. And this isn't something about Israel that we are somehow exempt from. Every human heart turns inward upon itself. You know, Martin Luther, the reformer, says sin is about the human heart turning inward upon itself. And it's prone to turning against God. And this terrifying realization is that this wrath of this lion is stored up for each and every one of us. Um, In Romans 1, it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And in case there's any doubt about if he's talking about you here, just a few paragraphs later, it quotes the Psalms saying, none is righteous, no, not one. And so our greatest threat, you know, isn't that our country's going downhill or that we have this difficult life with all kind of misfortunes. It's not the devil himself. In Jesus, he says, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but not kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's talking about God, the Father, the one who will vanquish sin. And so where does this leave us? You know, staring in the face of this lion who is infinitely stronger than us, bent on destroying sin that we ourselves are helpful to remove from ourselves. You know, how is this an act of a good and fair and loving God towards us. And that brings us to our, our third point here, that compassion did not stay hidden from his eyes. In verse 14, you know, we see this glimmer that I mentioned about God's rescue plan in the midst of judgment. And, you know, this verse has a really interesting backstory in how it's translated, um, depending on how, you know, your your copy of the Bible, it's going to say this first sen- these first sentences in one of two ways. Um, either as a question or as a definitive statement. And maybe some translations try to split the middle ground. They'll say it in like a statement that's not super definitive. And so even among translations, this changed from year to year. And the ESV is the copy that I've been reading from, changed this in 2016, like six years ago, pretty recent. Um, It's not like this was written six years ago. So there's obviously been a lot of discussion about how this should be interpreted. You know, before 2016, it says it this way, it says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. And when you read it that way, in the light of everything else around Hosea, those questions are kind of answered no, right? It's right before there is talking about Israel's stubbornness and right after there, talking about compassion being hidden from his eyes. But in the updated version, it says, I shall redeem them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. It's this definitive promise, right? So this isn't a discrepancy that's just, oh, is it Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, or is it sixty cubits or twenty cubits? Um, this is one that really kind of fundamentally changes how we would think about this verse and then maybe even this chapter. Um, you know, so why is there this discrepancy? And one commentary I came across says this. It says. The fact that this verse contains a promise and not a threat would hardly have been overlooked by so many commentators if they had not been led out of regard for Hosea 13.13, the one right before, and Hosea 13.15, the one right after, to put force upon the words. So what they're saying here is that this promise of salvation, this declaration by God that he will ransom them, that he will redeem them, is wildly out of place in everything else we've just read. It says, you know, Israel's not coming forth as the sun that it's supposed to be, and I'm not going to have compassion towards them, and I'll fall upon them like a lion, and they'll fall by the sword. All these things, you know, just having this promise of, I shall redeem them from Sheol, I shall redeem them from death, is, you know, something commentators thought, this must not mean what the words mean at face value, and it's been translated as such to try to put it in context. But, The New Testament here, this verse may sound familiar because it's referenced in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where uh, the Apostle Paul, he sees this promise that pokes through judgment. And in the light of the glory of the good news about Jesus, he can interpret this as a promise with triumphant certainty. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful for that ultimate promise of victory that, um, you know, on a personal level, you know, nine months ago, uh, tomorrow actually, December 22nd, my my dad suddenly passed away at just 59 years old, and you know, he collapsed in his hospital room. Nurses right next to him, not able to bring him back, and they suspect it was a pulmonary embolism. Um, he had been in the hospital because uh, he had anxiety. You know, he'd suffered with his whole life, but had gotten very severe leading up to this point, and the various therapies and treatments he was going through you know, ended him with an inpatient stay at the hospital. And I kept saying to myself, uh, you know, to my mom to others you know this suffering he's going through it will not have the final word over his life and you know, we thought this would be you know all be over soon and you know some level of normalcy would come back and with how everything unfolded you know how his heightened anxiety seems to at least on the surface had the final word um you know it's words that i said that haunt me right that i would be so confident that this wasn't forever but i do have hope in these words on the screen here right that though death came as it comes for us all, it does not have the final victory. It has been swallowed up by the death and resurrection of Jesus. God himself fulfilling his promise that he has made a way to keep us from the final sting of death. What would normally follow these verses is that compassion is hidden from my eyes. Paul doesn't include that part because he knows and we know that compassion did not stay hidden from his eyes. I had a friend in college uh, who was an atheist, and we were very close, and we talked a lot about our faith or lack thereof. And you know, he came to the opinion of himself, and one is you know, shared by many. Uh, it goes something like this. You know, If God would allow suffering in people's lives, either in this world or in hell, then he either isn't there or he doesn't care. Right? And this this idea that God either isn't there, or He isn't there. It's this pretty confrontational and hard-hitting thought. It's one that can sound very convincing, um, and it's super catchy because it rhymes, right? Like we really love a good rhyme. Um, but it can be satisfyingly answered in the person of Jesus, because you know God, you know, not just some theoretical sense being there. He came there. He became present to us in a very real way, coming as the man. Jesus Christ, and he does care, ultimately dying on the cross, being forsaken by his father as he bore our guilt, guilt that we earned, to save us from a wrath, a wrath that we deserved. Romans 5 says it this way, he says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He was there, even though he didn't have to be. And he cared. and He directed his wrath against sin at himself. Second Corinthians 5 says it this way. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, it was for our sake. Compassion, it did not stay hidden from his eyes. You know, praise the Lord for that, right? And so as we go back and think about our three ideas here today, you know, for those of you here who are followers of Christ, you know, I, I warn you, don't forget your need for God. You cannot outgrow your need for him. You just can't afford to, right? Don't let your successes, whatever they might be, pull you away. Don't let your sufferings be wasted as an opportunity to practice needing him and growing and trusting and hoping in him he'll gladly bear those sufferings alongside of you, right? He showed us that he will as he went to the cross for us, and he shows us that even still. To those of you who are here who aren't Christians, you know, I plead with you that there's no good enough, there's no being a good enough person uh, to earn this righteousness. You know, we're, we're thrilled that you are here. We're thrilled that you're listening. Um, welcome to a church of broken people. You know, each and every one of us have fallen short of what We would need to to do and and be to be perfect in God's eyes. And there is a day set where the wrath of God, the lion, will be revealed against sin. Your sin, my sin, but God is not without compassion. Trust him. Jesus will bear the burden of your sin. He himself became sin for you so that when God sees you, he doesn't see you by your mistakes or by the way you don't measure up. He sees his son perfect in every way. He invites you home with him. So let us pray together here. Uh, God, thank you that um, you remind us today through these words in Hosea that we are desperate for you. Um, that we, we need to beg you. We need to need you um, in a way more real than sometimes we are uh, thinking of as we're distracted by the things in life that, Convince us that we are self-sufficient, that we uh, can be independent, and, and while maybe in some senses that's true, uh, please God, uh, forgive us of where we think that's true of our of our souls and our, of our righteousness and of our being good enough. Um, God, we we need you for that. We we fail each and every day. Um, I fail each and every day. God, help us to to realize that. Um, yeah, we just can't forget you. Uh, we, we can't outgrow our need for you. Um, God, we thank you for how you have the final word over death, that death has been swallowed up in victory, um, that this judgment um, you bore upon yourself, that we ourselves don't have to be the target of your wrath against sin, that your, our sin has been bundled up on the cross with Jesus. It's been nailed there. Permanently finally for us. God, we thank you that you did this you thank you for your rescue plan that reaches back through All of scripture and that we get to hear on this side of the cross with the promise and not the judgment Um, God we ask you to be with us as we go um, Internalize this uh, work in our lives to uh, Analyze everything we do in light of eternity the sufferings we go through the things that are going well that we hold them up to to you and ask what you would have for us through them. God, we we love you, we thank you, and help us to, to worship you as we continue our service today. Amen.